0: All right, welcome back. Let me, invite, uh, let me invite you back to your area. And we're going to take a look at James chapter 5, uh, verses 13 through 20 this morning. Uh, so if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to James 5. 13 through 20. And this is a sermon about prayer today. We began uh, a 21 day emphasis on prayer. Today is the third day of that. And if you would like to participate in the 21 day emphasis of prayer initiative, we have some prayer guides available for you. You can pick those up uh, at the end of our time together today. Uh, But this morning, we're going to have a special sermon about prayer from James chapter 5. So let me invite you to read. We're going to read verses 13 through 20 of James 5. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Lord Jesus, we thank you that this is the Word of God, that it will stand forever, that it will endure, that it has endured for 2,000 years already and has been read and cherished by groups of Christ followers around the world in multiple languages and cultures, and that today we have the opportunity to hear a word that is as relevant today as it has been to any other group of Christ followers in centuries past and centuries to come. We thank you that it will endure forever. And we pray that you would apply your word to our hearts today, that we may uh, apply it and live it out in such a way that our culture may experience you that they may see you more clearly and that they may love you, that they may see the light of the gospel and your word lived out amongst this community of Christ followers. We pray and ask a blessing on your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Why a 21-day emphasis on prayer? Why are we in a prayer initiative? Why would I call together our small body of believers to um, a separated time where we are asking you to pray, to take your prayer life up a notch, to intensify your prayer. Well, several reasons, probably obvious to you as well. One of the reasons, uh, I, I couldn't shake a news story that I heard a few weeks ago. Dentists have described an increase in the amount of broken teeth that they are fixing exponentially over the last six months. And they attribute this to anxiety. And one of the body's natural responses to anxiety is a condition called bruxism, right? Any of you with kids used to grind their teeth? As a parent, it was one of the worst noises I could imagine. I would uh, just grab their jaws and try to, don't grind your teeth, right? I can't stand that sound of uh, grinding of teeth. When my little brother went into the military, one of the first things they would do in the military was fix that problem for you so that if you were in the barracks, uh, you couldn't Ruin the sleep and the rest of other soldiers by teeth grinding, but teeth grinding is um, one of the results, the body's natural response to anxiety. And anxiety during waking hours is one thing. When you experience anxiety during waking hours, you uh, fixate on an issue, w- you worry about an issue, you you overly um, are concerned about an issue. But but when your anxiety level increases so much so that uh, in the middle of the night you struggle to sleep and your body is trying to release anxiety that's one of the body's natural responses there's much to be anxious about you know all the reasons why our culture is anxious not just a pandemic not just an election not just A culture that seems to have lost its mind when it comes to truth and when it comes to morality and when it comes to decision making and reasoning. I don't think there's any greater time for us to enter into a day and a time, a period as Christ followers to emphasize prayer. So as we enter into a 21-day emphasis on prayer, it seemed good to teach on this topic today. Normally, this is a very practical teaching that is done in discipleship. Uh, We have a fairly robust discipleship uh, track where we encourage you to get involved in groups of one to three, one to four, one to five. And we, we cover issues like this in great detail. And so preaching, I'm sorry, prayer is typically done in these discipleship groups because prayer is one of those muscles that is best developed through consistent use in small groups. It's more caught than taught. It's hard to teach on prayer. I can't teach you enough bullet points in prayer in a 30-minute sermon that couldn't be modeled for you best in the discipleship group. It's often the case that if you're isolated, if you're not a part of a small group, that your prayer life becomes stale or stagnant when you pray alone. But as you pray with other people in small groups, something happens. You catch their passion. You listen to the way they incorporate scripture into their prayer life. You're able to see the ways in which they uh, ascribe worth and value to the Father. You listen to the titles and to the ways in which other people have experienced God. You hear the way they interact with the Trinity, often directing their prayer to the Holy Spirit or to the Son, Jesus Christ, or to God the Father. Tim Keller says, By praying with friends and others, you are able to hear and see facets of Jesus that you yourself have not yet perceived. When you pray in groups, your theology is tested as oftentimes you filter and think through your words and the words of others and evaluate what you're hearing. As you pray in groups, you can empathize with others when they sincerely express frustration and difficulty and challenges and doubts. You're often encouraged toward more vulnerability and sincerity Especially as you get into a group where another is willing to step out in a little bit more vulnerable ways, to confess sin, to acknowledge weakness. And with that sincerity and vulnerability, it often is contagious and others feel more of a sense of vulnerability and sincerity as well. That can only happen in small groups. But also in small group prayer, you're encouraged as others also work through similar doubts and struggles. And then you grow yourself as an intercessor. An intercessor is just someone who has taken on the discipline of fervently praying for others, standing in the gap for them. As a result, you become an encourager and you become better at praying for others. You become more insightful as you figure out ways in which to pray for other people. Your desire for godliness and righteousness and holiness increases as you begin to pray in groups. You also see the way other believers carry on a conversation with the Lord as the Holy Spirit guides them in prayer. It seems as though, if you've been around people who are skilled in small group prayer, that they're having a conversation with the Almighty. They're responding to prompts in prayer. And that enables you to heighten your senses so that you also listen in prayer as much as you pray in prayer. And that's what I mean when I say that all of this and more is caught more than taught. So any sermon that I could give you, any teaching that I could give you in prayer, can't hold a candle to two hours of small group prayer over the course of a few weeks. But I'll do my best, and I'm going to do my best to teach a little bit on prayer today with just four specific pastoral goals in mind. The first goal that I have in mind in this little sermon on prayer is I want you to participate in the 21-day prayer emphasis. Simple goal. I just want you to participate. I want you to take your prayer life up a notch over the next uh 18 days we're already three days in but i want you to participate I want you to evaluate where your prayer life is today. And today, I would like for you to leave today saying, I'm going to pray a little bit more. I'm going to put a little bit more emphasis, a little bit more attention. I'm going to wake up a little bit earlier, or I'm going to um, set down social media for a little while, and I'm going to focus on prayer. I would just want you to take your prayer life up a notch, increasingly over the next 18 days. uh, And that will lead us into a greater time of prayer on October 3rd. 30th when we gather here for a day of prayer and fasting, and we culminate this prayer emphasis just a few days before the election, and also as an opportunity to set apart the Destepanos for the work that God them to in Guatemala. So that's the first goal: is that I want you to participate in the 21-day prayer emphasis leading up to that day of prayer and fasting. But the second goal that I have for prayer um, is more enduring. That's a temporary goal, the first goal, but the second goal is a little bit more enduring. I would like as a second goal for this little sermon to stoke your prayer life to greater effectiveness. This is a great time of year for a fire pit, amen? do you love fire pits? The smoke always seems to follow me, and no matter where I stand around the fire pit, and I can't help leaving a fire pit smelling like smoke, One of the struggles I've always had around a fire pit is that once I get started messing with it, I can't stop. (laughs) I I always rearrange the logs, Uh, I'm always getting more wood, I'm always stacking it and arranging it. And Oftentimes, no one has to worry about the fire if I'm around, because I just will spend hours messing with it. It's some sort of compulsion I can't get around doing that. And that's important. If you don't have someone to stoke a fire, then it grows cold and the ash overcomes it and it it loses some of its heat and intensity. And maybe your prayer life has lost some intensity. Maybe your prayer life has grown stale or stagnant or even cold altogether. Pride teaches you that you don't need to pray, that you've got this all together and the less you pray, The more overwhelmed by pride you may have become, and the more stale and stagnant or even cold your prayer life has taken on. John Bunyan said that prayer will make a man cease from sin, or sin will entice a man to cease from prayer. So whatever it is that has affected your prayer life, maybe it's not as intense as you would like it to be. Maybe like a fire pit, it has gone out and it is close to losing its heat. My second goal today is to stoke your prayer life to greater effectiveness. The third goal I have for us today is I would like to see your conviction deepen that fervent, persistent, and consistent prayer is the greatest course of action for real change, both in yourself and in your relationships with those you love, and in your community, and in this culture, and in this nation, and in the world. Maybe you don't believe that prayer changes things. Maybe you don't believe that your prayer contributes to change. But I would like for you to deepen your conviction that fervent, persistent, and consistent prayer is the greatest course of action for change. It's not a last-ditch effort. It's not what we turn to last. It's what we turn to first in order to see greater change. Prayer is the greatest course of action for real change. One of our political parties would convince you that voting is the way to enact change, but I'm convinced that prayer by spirit-filled Christ followers, especially in the context of biblical community, is the greatest way to effect change. And then just the final goal is I want you to make an effort to pray regularly with people. That's it. I want you to participate in the 21 day of prayer. I want to stoke your prayer life to greater effectiveness. I want you to deepen your understanding and conviction that fervent, consistent, and persistent prayer is powerful and effective. And I want you to make more of an effort to pray regularly with people. It's easy to talk about prayer. It's easy to share prayer requests. It's really easy to text somebody and say, pray for me. But I want you just to take the next step over the next 21 days especially, and call someone and say, will you pray with me? Not to talk about prayer, not to ask for prayer requests, not just to gather and share your burdens with each other, but just to take the extra step and say, will you pray with me right now? And to engage with one another in prayer together. And I think that as you do that, I think that you will experience a greater impactful prayer life. This is the way we're created to connect with our Heavenly Father. And this is how we strengthen our faith. What greater way to strengthen your faith than to speak to one that you can't see, you can't touch, and you can't taste, and you can't hear audibly. But to exercise faith is to pray to the one who is unseen and yet is more real than any relationship that you could ever experience on this earth. We also understand that, as Jim Diamond taught a few weeks ago, that revival begins with prayer. Historically, any awakening has always begun with a small group of people who are praying. Salvation always goes back to a small group of people praying for somebody. Uh, Life change begins with prayer. Being salt and light and an influence in our culture starts with prayer. We also understand that the enemy hates a group of people who pray together. We also understand that the church that thrives and grows and abounds in spiritual life and vigor and fruitfulness is a praying church. That's a lot about prayer as an introduction. So let's get back into our text If you've ever spent much time at Ridson, you know that about 85% of the sermons here are exegetical, verse by verse, walking through a book of the Bible. Maybe eight sermons a year are topical. Uh, And so I feel a little bit uncomfortable not attaching a topical text, topical sermon to a text. So we're going to walk through James 5 exegetically, verse by verse. And. We'll get back to Mark and finish chapters 15 and 16 later. But for today, we're going to teach on this passage in James. If you follow through the progression, verses 13 through 20, you'll see the word that is overly used is the word prayer. James is describing a prayer life in a community. He's describing Prayer in a community. He's addressing a community of Christ followers. That's the consistent theme through James: is that it is addressed to a group of believers. And so he asked him, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The book of James has been compared to wisdom literature from the Old Testament, but for the New Testament. If you think about Proverbs or Ecclesiastes or Song of Solomon or the Psalms or the book of Job, those five books represent to us uh, wisdom literature in the Old Testament, and they have forms and they have uh, literary devices. James picks up on a lot of those things, uh, such uh, the forms and literary devices that James picks up is... An emphasis on prayer using an ABA structure. That is, he introduces one thing, introduces another thing, and sandwiches it with the two topics. So he says, Is anyone sick? Let him pray. The B structure, is anyone cheerful, let him sing praise. And then he returns to the A structure if someone is weak or sick, bringing an emphasis to the A part of that structure. That's used commonly in Proverbs. But he's talking about suffering and sickness within the church. And he describes the remedy for suffering and sickness as prayer. Prayer in a community. Prayer together together. He's describing prayer in a community, in a biblical context of Christ followers together calling for the leaders or the elders or the pastors of the church to pray and to anoint with oil in the name of the Lord. This is a regular practice for us. Oftentimes people request, could you or one of the elders come and pray for us in this situation? Uh, There is a sickness or there is an issue that we would like prayer over. This is a very common thing in the life of the church and has been a part of my experience in almost every church that I've been with, is that People understand this passage that there is a communal nature to prayer, that there is a power that is released as believers pray together, united with one another. I don't think I have to convince you of that. In verse 15, James writes that the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, in the same way that wisdom literature in the Old Testament often assembles short, impactful statements of wisdom, James also, like Proverbs, well, seemingly disconnected to one another a symbol sayings that almost mimic proverbs and verse 15 might be an example it doesn't necessarily seem like it's connected to verses 13 and 14 because he describes the prayer of faith and this has all the language of what you and I might recognize as the prayer of salvation doesn't it you read this prayer and it seems like what we would describe as the prayer of salvation He describes a prayer of faith. He describes the Lord raising him up, which refers to uh, salvation at the end times or that resurrection type prayer and the forgiveness of sins if he has committed it. That's a prayer of faith leading to salvation, leading leading to the raising up of one and also to their sins being forgiven. But there is an alternative understanding that we see in the New Testament, and that is that sin causes a physical sickness. Sin causes a physical sickness, that if you are engaging in sinful behavior, that it can manifest itself in physical symptoms. For an example, see 1 Corinthians 11.30. Paul describes when he's teaching on the Lord's Supper that some are so engaged in sin That they're sick, and he says some of them have even died, and that forgiveness brings about a physical healing. Which application do we choose in verse 15? You can definitely say that it is true that the prayer of faith, that is a response to the sharing of the gospel results in a sinner praying a prayer of faith receiving the forgiveness of sins and eventually a resurrection to life and the physical soul salvation of the one who is sick that application is definitely true while not negating the other application right You can see the sinner's prayer leading to salvation for the one who is sick either from sin or the one who is sick ultimately from his sins as a believer. But the remedy, verse 16, is where I want to land our focus for the rest of our time together. He says, "...therefore confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed." The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And this is where I want us to spend the rest of our time together. He points to Elijah at the in verses 17 through 18, and that refers back to 1 Kings 17. Elijah is a guy with a nature just like ours, meaning he has a sin nature just like us. Elijah wasn't any more righteous in and of himself than you and I are. And yet Elijah experienced massive power in his prayer life. You think about the prophets of Baal and him calling down fire. You think about him withholding uh, rain for a nation and. Just And then the Lord, as a lifting of that judgment, Elijah calls down prayer. And you remember that passage where he's telling his assistant, uh, what do you see? And he looks toward the Mediterranean on the top of Mount Carmel and he says, I see a cloud the size of a man's fist rising up over the Mediterranean and these storm clouds coming and they will shower. God's nation in reign as the lifting of judgment, Elijah had that kind of power in prayer. But James's point is that he's, he's no more righteous than you and I are. He has a nature just like us. So how do we experience great power in prayer? I think you and I both all want a more meaningful, a more impactful a more potent prayer life, don't you? How many of you would love to pray for someone and then the next day or the next week see that person and they say, uh, Something happened last week at such and such a time or at such and such an hour. I, I just experienced the presence of God or the healing of God or the nearness of God or I felt a peace that I didn't have before. And you could trace that time back to a moment when the Lord might have led you to pray for that person. There is a real impact that you can have on a person's real life When you are yielded to the Holy Spirit and he allows you to pray for someone in such a time and in such a way that your prayer is impactful on a person. Have you experienced that before? Have you prayed for someone and seen an answer to that prayer in real time and in real ways that are really measurable? This is the day in, day out, regular experience for Christ followers that your prayers are powerful, that your prayers are effective, that your prayers are impactful. How many times have you been on the receiving end of that message where you've been under a time where you needed peace or where you needed assurance or where you needed provision and someone is praying for you and they let you know that they're praying for you and you experience the answer to that prayer? We all want to experience greater power in prayer. Scripture calls us to that. It's filled with men and women who pray great and powerful prayers that are answered miraculously and somewhat immediately, it seems like. That's what we want to experience. But all too often, our prayer lives can devolve into an experience that is characterized not as having great power, but we can find ourselves praying these stale and stagnant, bless this and be with that kind of prayers. How do we experience a more impactful, greater power in our prayer life? Well, James says that it is a righteous person's prayers that have great power and effectiveness. Are you a righteous person? You might say, no, I would never categorize myself as righteous. Why not? Why aren't you a righteous person? For some reason, we tend not to use words to describe ourselves that God uses to describe you. You know, he calls you a saint and you would minimize that. You would say, oh, I'm no saint. Or God would say, be holy as I am holy. And and if I were to ask you, are you a holy person? You would say, no, 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 I'm not holy. I'm not a saint. God calls you beloved. Would you say to yourself, no, I'm not beloved. God calls you righteous. Would you describe yourself in words that God uses to describe you? Have you embraced the identity that Jesus Christ has bestowed upon you in Christ In your flesh, you might minimize who you are in Christ and maximize who Satan says you are. But you are called righteous. You are called holy. You are called beloved. You are called a child of God. You have an identity in Jesus Christ that is unshakable and should form, the very formation and the very uh, value of which God ascribes to you should also inform your prayer life. James says a righteous person is powerful in his prayer life and that's you. You are called righteous. And why does God call you righteous? Not because of any righteousness that you possess in and of yourself, but because of Jesus Christ and the righteousness that he imparts to you at the prayer of faith. At the prayer of faith, at the moment of salvation, God exchanges your unrighteousness and your sinfulness and your guilt and your shame, though your sins are as Scarlet as crimson, they shall be what? They shall be as white as snow. The great exchange takes place the moment your heart is convicted and you repent of your sins and you give your life to Jesus Christ. You receive the righteousness of Christ as a robe right when when the rebellious son returns to the father the father kills the fattened calf and he says bring the best robe and put it on my son as a symbol of restoration christ follower when you give your life to jesus christ you exchange your unrighteousness and your sinfulness for the righteousness of jesus christ John Owen reminds us, saying, we can begin each day with the deeply encouraging realization that I'm accepted by God, not on the basis of my personal performance, but on the basis of the infinitely perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And if that's not a reason for you to uh, rejoice in your salvation, that you don't have to earn righteousness but that you are righteous simply on the basis of being in Christ Jesus, if that doesn't give you a reason to sing and to rejoice today, you might check your spiritual condition before God god imparts to us the righteousness of jesus christ and we don't have to earn that we don't deserve that we deserve the wrath that he took on himself on the cross and he imputes to us the righteousness of jesus christ so that when god looks at you he doesn't see your sin and your unrighteousness but he sees the righteousness of jesus christ that covers you amen amen that's good news That's good news. But how do you walk in the righteousness so that your prayer life is more effective? I think the key here is the confession of sin. Look back at verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins one to another. There's the community aspect. And pray for one another so that you may be healed. You want to experience a more potent, a more powerful prayer life? One of the keys is the confession of sin. The key to powerful prayer is that it's prayed by a righteous person, and we all know that none of us are righteous in and of ourselves. So personal confession of sins and the corporate confession of sins is a necessary component to powerful prayer. R.C. Sproul says, There is no greater state than to get up from your knees knowing that God has forgiven every sin that you've ever committed. If we had to analyze our greatest needs and list them, we might list, I need provision, or I need healing or I need a relationship to be restored or I need more time or a little bit more comfort or I need deliverance from a particular besetting sin. If we were to analyze our greatest list of needs I have a feeling that we would be shocked if Jesus Christ were to walk into our midst and he were to say our greatest need and deliver us from it. And In hindsight we have the the benefit of being able to read the gospels that oftentimes that was just the case people would bring others to jesus and jesus seeing their obvious need uh, a person who needed healing jesus would ignore the most obvious need of a person and he would say what your sins are forgiven and jesus would characterize your greatest need as the forgiveness of sins. I wonder how many of you would say that your greatest need today is to have a sin forgiven. Maybe it's been days since you have taken a catalog and evaluated your life and approached the throne of grace to receive mercy and to name your sins specifically and to say... Lord Jesus, I have sinned against you in this way and in this way and in this way and to receive the forgiveness of sins. First John 1.9 says that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You see, believer, there is a way in which you can walk in this world that though you are completely sanctified and washed clean by the blood of Jesus, as it were, your feet get dirty with the dirt of walking just in a sinful world. And you probably see this and remember this really clearly when Peter at the Last Supper, Jesus takes a towel and begins to wash, wash his disciples' feet. And Peter, seeing what's taking place, looks at Jesus and he says, you're not going to wash my feet. <laughs> and Jesus says, you don't really know what you're talking about right here. I'm paraphrasing. And Peter says, you can't wash my feet. And and Jesus said, well, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part of me. And what does Peter say? Well, then don't just wash my feet. Wash, my, wash every part of me. Wash my head to my toes. Wash my whole body, <laughs> which would have been an awkward scene there. But Jesus says, you don't understand this. A person who's had a bath doesn't need to be washed again. He, he just needs his feet washed. What does he mean? He means that the person in Christ is sanctified completely. Your sins are not counted against you any longer. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 And yet at the same time, a believer, as he walks through this world, will experience temptation and will inevitably, occasionally give in to temptation to sin. And in the course of that, giving in to sin will accumulate dirt on their feet, though their body has been washed clean by the blood of Christ. The remedy for that is the regular confession of sin. And the longer it's been since you've confessed your sin, the weaker your prayer life is and the weaker your righteousness experientially becomes. I don't think that's too hard for us to understand. And so the remedy in 1 John 1, 9 is that if you regularly confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You can have a fresh start today though you walked in sin this week though you've walked in sin over the last month though you've walked in sin for years you can experience a fresh start today by the grace of god and through the mercy of jesus christ he freely offers you forgiveness of sins You didn't come here today hoping that I would tell you that you can be forgiven. And yet your greatest need before God today is the forgiveness of sins if you're not in Christ. If you're in Christ, you can have a fresh start and embrace your identity in Christ as a saint, as beloved, as a child of God, as precious, as holy, as righteous, because of the righteousness of Christ that is given to you not because you earned it, not because you deserved it. So today, are you walking in forgiveness? Are you walking in the righteousness of Christ? Have you been covered by Jesus? He offers you forgiveness and grace and mercy, and it's just a prayer away. Don't let your pride keep you from it. Your pride says, I don't need that. That's for somebody else today. But through a willing, humble examination of your own life, you can respond today, asking for forgiveness, confessing your sins, and experiencing a new, fresh start. And that's the beginning of revival, amen? That's how you're gonna see change in your own life and in our culture. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the promise of prayer. We thank you that you hear us when we pray. We thank you that you tell us to cast all our cares upon you because you care for us. You tell us, Jesus, to come to you, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Your word in Philippians 4, 6 says, that if we're anxious about anything, that we should pray about everything with all prayer and supplication. I pray that you would deliver us from anxiety anxiety Our culture is swimming in it right now, breaking teeth left and right because of the anxiety that is produced from not knowing you and having a relationship with you. And Let it not be so among us. Let us be as a people who are filled with peace, the surpassing peace that comes from being in the presence of Jesus Christ, having a right relationship with you through confession, through praying together, through walking together in righteousness. Lord, let it be so today. For all those who are wandering, let them come back today. That's the promise in James, that those who have wandered can be restored. For those who are in Christ, let them be restored. Lord Jesus, we pray that there would be a renewal that takes place today. Though it may not be realized for a few days, maybe a week or more, Let the beginning be now, that I will arise and meet with Jesus. I will arise and return. I will repent and make the journey back. Through confession and repentance, through personal evaluation, I will rise to meet with Jesus. He will embrace me in His arms. And in the presence of Jesus, there is 10,000 charms. We pray that it would be so today. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.